Hello and welcome to Unsafe Space with Carter Laren and Carrie Smith. I'm very excited about today's interview. We get to talk with two new friends who I met when I did an episode of their show called Canceled the Podcast with Rob Rosen and Desma Simon. Um, I've since been on a binge of some of their episodes. I can highly recommend a few of them. And if you guys are fans of our show already, you will recognize some of the people they've been talking to. Rob is the creator, director, and executive producer of the Hit Discovery ID true crime series, Reasonable Doubt. He's also the executive producer of the paranormal reality show, The Dead Files on the Travel Channel, which recently completed its 11th season. Desma Simon is the co-executive producer of Reasonable Doubt on Investigation Discovery and longtime television producer on shows such as The Dead Files, Love Addiction, and Dr. Phil. You can follow Rob on Twitter at robrosen14, and you can follow Desma on Instagram at Desma underscore Simon. We'll put links to their social media stuff below. And obviously, you can look for the canceled podcasts basically anywhere you find podcasts. So thank you. Thank you both, Rob and Desma, for, for joining us today. Thank no. you. And I know this is so petty, but just so I can get it in there, Dead Files is actually finishing its 13th season. Oh, oh well, wow. tell wow. IMDb to update their, their description yeah, of you. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I no. so. thank you for having us. Um, by the way, I love the cancel sign in the back. I, I need to steal that. I'm going to come to your house today. That's just for you guys. That's just for you. I, we, I change it every episode. So so you won't oh, well. need it at the end of the day. I'll take nope. it. <laughs> you can steal it. You can steal it. So I wanted to uh, talk to you guys for a couple of reasons. One well, okay, we can we can get in this one. Let's get into later. So the first one, why don't you tell people a little bit about what inspired you to do this podcast to start talking about cancel culture, and how did the idea come to you, and what is it that you hope to learn from interviewing people about it? I'll I'll take it. Um, so. What a lot of people don't realize is that Rob and I actually have worked together for a very long time. Um, and through that that work relationship, we actually became really close friends. And we spent a lot of time on the road filming episodes. And we would see in the news these these trends of, you know, things happening in the media where someone was being shamed or, or publicly shamed or, you know, their worst you know, 30 seconds of their life was plastered all over social media and whatnot. And so him and I would sit and we would talk about these stories and he would have a different point of view and I would have a different point of view. Sometimes we agreed, sometimes we disagreed. And, you know, from there, it was just kind of like, well, why don't we, why don't we explore these stories? Um, and because what you see is you see the story, but you never hear about the aftermath. You never know where whatever happened with this individual, where they are in their life, or if they ever recovered from it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really where that stemmed from was the curiosity of where are these where are these people now? And I and I think that what we we came in open minded and looking to sort of explore this phenomenon and try to see uh, where this is coming from. And I think, and I don't know if Desma even agrees with me on this, but I think that what we're finding out is that there is a pattern and that a lot of this comes back to the SJW agenda, which wasn't what I really expected going in. I really just thought it was people who were being busybodies and uh, just being judgmental and judging people from a 10 second snippet, which is partially true, but it, there does seem to be a much bigger picture to all this. Yeah, I definitely, I, I definitely didn't see it from that point of view. How, and how, how do you notice that in, in what way? 
I think that what I'm consistently seeing, and I, I again, I'm just speaking for myself, and then Desma, jump in if you're seeing it differently. I mean, I think what I'm consistently seeing is that the kinds of moments that are being amplified and being retweeted and retweeted and retweeted almost universally do have an SJW theme, which is sort of reinforcing messaging that uh, the United States and that white people are systemically racist and um, that it's kind of a hopeless situation. And all of these are examples. Now, we have found some stories where the right has done it to people. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, a guy named Adam Smith, who was uh, who we used for actually a television pilot. And uh, he was someone who was trying to do liberal messaging. He went through Chick-fil-A, he had his uh, cell phone on, and he kind of berated this teenage employee about their LGBT policies, and then he got canceled. So it can work the other way. I think there is something about human nature where people in power really try to cut off free speech and mm -hmm. try to cut off dissenting voices. And I think that that's kind of a core unfortunate human nature thing. And one thing Desmond and I strongly both agree on is free speech. But that's important to have a robust, vibrant, free speech where every point of view is heard so that we get to the best decision about whatever the issue is. Um, I think in this particular moment in time, because so many of the big institutions have been dominated by SJWs, the pattern seems pretty clear to me that that's where most of the people who are being canceled are running afoul because a lot of times you see things that cut the other way and it kind of seems to just go away, especially when it involves celebrities. When, when Rob and I started on this journey, I particularly had no knowledge of what SJWs were, what their behavior was, what their ideas, nothing. Um, like I literally was just had no knowledge of it. And it wasn't actually until we did the interview with Carrie and we had her on the show and she really just broke it down to me. And what I, and I always had this idea that this behavior was stem from just people just being mean, you know, just being unhappy and just looking for reasons to attack. But there's a whole other side to this and the underlining meaning of it, which you know, thankfully, we were able to really dial in and bring to light, you know, through through our podcast. Yeah, it's interesting because when I talked with you guys, uh, yeah, I was saying for me, because I'm familiar with the SJW world, I can't I don't usually talk about cancel cultural culture separate from it because I see it as a tactic that's employed by people who have this ideology that I had. But I do know that obviously anyone, like you said, the people on the right have engaged in this too, that anybody can use this tool. It's just that I see it most effectively and most predominantly being used right now by people of my old belief system. But can you tell us a little bit about the ones that don't fit that, some of the ones that don't fit the SJW mold? Like, um, I think your, was it your first interview was with Ted Haggard? Tell us a little about that one. Yeah. And just, and by the way, just to tack on to what you're saying, Carrie, um, <laughs> I, I remember after 9-11, um, there was a real chill in the air about people who dissented from the uh, from the war in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And I remember that that was there was kind of a chill in the air and that kind of free speech. Not, you know, if there had been social media back then, I am guessing a lot of people on the left would have been canceled. The country was in no mood for any kind of dissent yeah. after these attacks. So. Unfortunately, you know, I, I, I just want to be clear that I'm not really singling out uh, the left. I think that 
um, when people unfortunately are in control of institutions, they try to cut off free speech. They don't want dissent. Unfortunately, that's human nature. Um, Ted Haggard, which was the first interview that Desmond and I had done. So I had talked to him. Yeah, I had talked to him for probably a year before the interview because we were working on some television pilot versions of this and um, we wanted him to come on. And I always had really nice conversations with him. He was uh, kind of charming and uh, a little bit bitter, but uh, he knew exactly what we were going to talk about. And it's funny because when we started uh, the interview, we always do a verbal podcast release. And he was joking. OK, this is when you get to ask old Teddy all these questions about his sex life. And, you know, he was making jokes about it. And then when we started asking him questions about the scandal, because it is Ted Haggard, like, I mean, what else are we going to talk to him about? Um, he suddenly acted like really offended, like we were part of the liberal mainstream media that once again was out to get him. And um, basically about 15 minutes into the interview, he starts berating us. And I don't think it let up for an hour till we said goodbye. And I think he would have gone on for another two hours. He kept threatening to hang up, <laughs> yeah. he, never, he never would. <laughs> no, no, he, he, he never did hang up. And, um, you know, and he, he actually accused us of, uh, you know, he said it's journalists like us that made, um, you know, the, uh, Harry and, um, uh, Harry and, uh, what's his, uh, Prince Harry, what's his wife's name? Oh, and, uh, uh Megan Markle. Yeah. Harry and Megan leave the, uh, the, uh, the Royal, uh, castle because, because of journalists like us. And I had to ensure them that that's not the case. They didn't leave because of us. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have a lot of influence. So much yeah. power. <laughs> Who knew? So I just have a question. Rob, you, you brought up earlier, you mentioned that you thought it was just busybodies, which I love that word, but I, I actually love the phrase busybody because I think it encapsulates so much of the psychology that we're seeing. Um, but I, I'm wondering if I'm wondering if there are certain ideologies that lend themselves to the busybody personality, maybe on the right and on the left. Have you have you explored that at all? Or do you have any thoughts on on whether or not busybody is part and parcel to some particular ideological beliefs? I have thoughts on that. I mean, I, I don't know that I've seen the pattern yet as it plays out in cancel culture, but Let's look at just sort of core beliefs of classical liberalism versus today's progressivism, right? So classical liberalism really values um, and sees government as maybe, I'm sorry, it sees that the basic function of government is to protect our freedoms, right? Sort of that Jeffersonian view. So it's a very laissez-faire, live and let live kind of uh, ideology, you look at today's progressivism, which has its roots in Marxism, and the belief is that you can have a centrally planned government, a government that plans the economy, that plans people's lives, that experts are better able to make decisions for people, more rational decisions than people themselves who are irrational. So I think when you see the core ideology, and maybe some of this has to do with the way our brains function, but I think that you see a difference where one ideology is really about individualism and letting people live their lives as long as they're not directly harming someone else. And another one's like, we can perfect humankind. And Desmond, I talk about this all the time and she'll, she's going to roll her eyes, but I think you see it in mask culture. 
right? Because I think that the reason that you have so many Mizzy bodies who love to police masks is this really plays into SJW culture. You get to virtue signal. You wear the mask, you wear the mask. You know, there there have been uh, reports issued where there, uh, I think a Canadian minister said you should wear the mask during sex. Uh, <laughs> Gavin, <laughs> Gavin, Gavin Newsom, our California governor, said that you should wear the mask in between bites uh, when you're at a restaurant. So I think that that busybody mentality appeals to people. Do you know, I was walking, um, I live up on the west side of Los Angeles. I was walking on Playa del Rey Beach two days ago with a friend of mine nobody around. And a bicyclist comes by and yells out, where are your masks, Trump lovers? <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's yeah. too because he's, it's, it's, it's become politicized to the point. And like you said, I do think part of it is, is become um, associated with social justice ideology only because social justice ideology is on the left and it's and whether you wear one or not has now become a right or left thing when I don't think organically it is. I, I'm going to jump in here just for a second. But like the fact that he calls you a Trump lover because you're not wearing a mask is so weird because organically, like I know conservative family members who lean more towards, I would say, the authoritarian side of the scale, who, who love the mask mandates and who love the lockdowns. And then I also know some leftist hippie crystal wearing people who go to the, all the mass protests here in Texas who hate the mask mandates because they're very on the individualism side of things. And so the media, I think, has, has taken this and said, this is a left-right thing, whether you like to wear it or not. And then unthinking people gravitate to whatever, whatever they're told, this is where your tribe is sitting, go get with your tribe. But, but naturally, I don't think it's a left-right thing. I think it's People who are, are are sort of just authentically acting out what they believe, it's it's more of an individualism, authoritarianism thing, I think. I'm sorry, that's not really a question. I just the fact that he associates you immediately mm -hmm. yells at you, Trump voter. What? Right. Well it's West well, yeah. it's West LA, right? So that, right. I mean this is the mindset out here. Everything is polarized. Yeah. And I, I also want to just add that I think a lot of this behavior is is really stemmed from how people feel that day, that hour. And they'll just basically act out whatever they're feeling. You know, tomorrow he may not even feel that he even cares about masks. And I think that's where people kind of go wrong because they don't even realize that they're even doing this. You know, they are, you know, they're outputting their behavior based on being reactive, you know, and reactive is, it will get you in trouble. And I think it's also a big problem with cancel culture um, altogether, but we'll, We'll dig deeper into that. What do you, Desmond, what do you and Rob disagree on that he said you were going to laugh about this with the masks? So here's the thing, like, and I kind of, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of <laughs> have to eat crow at this point right now. But for since this pandemic, um, him and I have never seen eye to eye on the mask um, situation, you know, the mandate. I totally believe I went to, I had to go by his house and I totally believe in social distancing, had a motorcycle helmet on, wouldn't even like take it off. And, you know, <laughs> he is, he wears his mask when he has to, you know, so in public and grocery stores, all of that. So him and I have gone back and forth over the last six months regarding the reports and the statistics and all of this. And he, it's, tit for tat. Like he gets me, I get him and we'll still never see eye to eye. But recently, just recently, um, 
yeah, kind of relaxed a little bit on that. And he's he's been giving me crap about it ever since. Uh, <laughs> well, you, you, you're trying I to kill grandma, been... basically, is what's happening now. <laughs> that, that is what I've been told. Yeah. Yeah. See, but I think with if people are actually doing what you're doing and trying to look at new information and keep an open mind, their opinions will change on it. Maybe not day to day, like you're saying, this guy on the beach may not choose to yell the next day or whatever. But but my opinions certainly have changed, and what I've chosen to do is still changing. It changes, and Carter Carter was sheltering in place in January before anybody was told to. He had masks. No, Look at you. Nobody's wearing them. Yeah, but so here's the difference, <laughs> yeah. though. I've gone from one extreme to the other. So in January, we were literally shell. My wife is Chinese, like native Chinese, and so and she has a lot of family in China. So we were kind of paying attention to what was going on, and so we we sheltered in place. We had a stock of food. We didn't go out. We like masks and gloves if we had to go do something. Like we were we were on the crazy end, and people were looking at us like we were crazy. Um, but by midsummer. We were kind of looking at all the data going, oh, this wasn't actually what we thought it was. It's not as bad. So now I'm kind of more in Rob's camp where I'm like, I'll begrudgingly wear a mask if I have to, if the store makes me, but this is bullcrap. Um, so the thing that I think that a lot of people uh, are, miss on this is I think a lot of the a lot of the pushback on masks is not a pushback about wearing masks or questioning your judgment about the virus. It's a pushback on being told that you must wear a mask. It's a pushback on authoritarianism, not on masks as such. Mm-hmm. That's that's 100% it. And that's and that's the busybody thing that we're talking about, right? There's a it's like lockdowns. Um, that is an imposition that, like, look, we, we pretty clearly know, and we saw the re- reporting from Alex Berenson, if you've been following him, uh, formerly of the New York times from early on, we knew by mid April that there was no curve to flatten. The hospital system was in no danger of it being overrun. All of these excuses for basically taking away everybody's liberties was gone. And now you had these governors who were becoming Kings and deciding, well, Walmart, Target, supermarkets, gas stations, these things can open, Mon stores, they can't. So it was very illogical. You had, a, what is it, Christine Whitmer in Michigan saying you could buy boats with an engine, Gretchen. but not those without. Yeah. Gretchen, I'm so sorry. Um, and just, you have to get the is... queen's name right. I just want to make sure you, it's, a, <laughs> yes, it's heresy to say her name incorrectly. So, so, so what, question, what was she there, saying there, about the boats? I forget. Gretchen. There was, um, there was, there was, uh, I can't remember which way it was, but you could, you could buy a boat with a motor, but not one without, or the other way around, <laughs> or one or the other. Random, right? Uh, yeah. So, so, so people have, are going out of business. People are staying at home. People now have to be muzzled when they go outside. And it's not an issue of any of these things. It's what happened to just individual responsibility where you say, look, there is a pandemic out there. If you believe that you're in a high risk category, you're elderly, or maybe you have pre-existing conditions, you probably want to take a lot of these precautions. And here are some of the things you can do. Six feet distance, wash your hands a lot. If you don't feel well, stay home, wear a mask in public. Great. But how did it become everybody's responsibility to go broke, stay home, wear a mask, and do all these things because we're thinking that maybe it may help vulnerable people. And I think, sorry, one last thing on this, because I I can talk about this all day, but um, thank God Sweden did what they did because it gives us a control study. And, you know, people who love lockdowns and authoritarianism hate to talk about Sweden, but you kind of get an idea of what would happen if we did nothing. And deaths per million, 
they're a little bit lower than us after all of this. So I have, a feeling, mm -hmm. I have a feeling we could have done absolutely nothing and been pretty much where we are now and not had all these people who are suicidal, depressed, uh, out of work, in danger of losing their homes. Their yeah. homes. That's yeah. the thing. Now, you mentioned something. You, you touched on it briefly, but I just want to say it explicitly. Uh, and I, I've said this before on our show, but um, this has been the largest transfer of wealth that's gone unchallenged in a really long time. And it's it's the shutting down the mom and pops and giving Jeff Bezos their business. And I don't understand how anyone on the left who purports to be against big corporations and blah, blah, blah. They always have their we hate big corporations. And yet they are behind uh, one of the most blatant transfers of wealth, because this is not just a one time transfer. Once that business is shut down, it's shut down forever. Amazon has now earned that business forever. Uh, and no one mm -hmm. seems to be talking about it. And we're not. And I don't know if you remember early on, we weren't even allowed to talk about the financial impact of what we were being asked to do, because that was callous. Uh, if you cared about grandma, why would you care about money? And it's this disconnect that like, well, people need to eat money. Money matters to people's livelihoods in a, in a very big way. And we're just we weren't allowed to talk about it. Not really a question. There. So why why have you guys? Here's here's the question I want to say for later. You guys both have uh, uh, amazing careers working in you know entertainment, working on the, the show Reasonable Doubt. You how have you not been canceled yet doing a show like this? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. I was going to ask that question. This, this might be the moment. Yeah. Um, Do you I am I am I overstating? I yeah. So in, in entertainment, cause I, I worked in entertainment for a while. Now I know why I had to leave what I was doing because I was, I had built my career in entertainment in a very specific niche where I was pushing my ideology and comedy. So I couldn't really push that ideology once I left it. And it, maybe that's influencing my opinion of what it's like to work in entertainment in general. And I'm wrong, but do you guys ever encounter any questions about, you know, why would you want to talk to people like that? Why would you want to do a show where you interview canceled people? Do you, are you seen as, um, are you afraid of being seen as a wrong thinker or, 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 you know, associating with bad apples who should have been pushed out of society? No, I mean, I think that's what makes the show so unique is that we are talking to people who have been quote unquote, banished, you know, from society, you know, nobody wants to have any type of association with them. Um, you know, in reality, the the whole reality of it is that at the end of the day, these are people, people do make mistakes. Um, you know, and if it's this, if it's this podcast, or if it's another show, someone's always going to be interested in knowing what happened to them, you know, was there any redemption? Did they feel that what they did was wrong? Um, of course, it's a case-by-case -case basis, but um, I think there's this, and what we've learned just from the feedback that we've got from the from the uh, podcast is that people want to know. People are, are curious. Um, and, you know, anyone who listens to the show will know that Rob and I don't shy away from tough questions. You know, we're, we're precise. They're very clear on what they come in on to the show to talk about. And we're going to dig deep. And there's times where, you know, particularly I may not agree with their behavior. Um, mm -hmm. And we'll talk about it. It's an open and honest conversation at the end of the day. And I, and I think that the other thing I would want to uh, add on to that is 
We very rarely uh, take a stance on the actual positions or the things that got people canceled. What we are really strong about, and thankfully um, we're not at the point yet where this is enough to get you canceled, but me in particular, I'll just speak for myself, I'm a free speech absolutist. And so I, it's not necessarily that I agree with some of the things that have been done or have been said that have gotten people canceled, but I almost always think it's an overreaction and that instead of saying, okay, look, here's a, a voice in the public square. If you don't like it, just walk away. Don't listen to it. Instead, there's this idea that we have to destroy them, destroy their mm -hmm. family, destroy their lives, destroy their livelihood. That's where I do mm -hmm. take a stance. Um, and that's different than getting into, oh, I think, you know, you know, that's the hard thing with free speech, right? You're always in that quandary and people always throw you into this corner where you're, tr they're, they're equivalent, they're uh, making an equivalency between what's being said and, uh, you defending the right for that person to speak. So I'm right. Jewish. I'm Jewish. You know, my mom was born in the Warsaw ghetto. She was orphaned by the war. But I will defend the right of a neo-Nazi to speak. Now, if someone's going to come at me and say, well, does that mean you defend what they say? No, of course not. Free speech is easy when it's something we all like. Someone wants to talk about uh, the movie they saw. No one wants to censor that speech, right? You really get challenged when it's something that you abhor, you know, and you believe that the right solution is to allow that speech and to trust that nobody's going to listen. Let them have that public square and they're going to take the chance that everyone's going to walk away and they're going to be speaking to themselves? Or do you believe in a more authoritarian model where somehow, somewhere, a group of people get to decide what's okay and what's not? To me, that's way more frightening. Yeah. So I, I was going to ask you both this question, but maybe we've got your answer. So maybe I'll just ask Desma. <laughs> Have there been examples of the people you've interviewed? How many of them are people that you would say, oh, yeah, they deserved, they deserved what they got? <laughs> well, um, personally, I don't think anybody, and and I'm pretty, I believe I'm pretty clear on this, on the on the podcast is that I don't believe anyone deserves to go through a public shaming. Um, it's brutal. It's cruel. And what they don't realize is the impact that it just doesn't have on that individual, it affects their entire family. You know, it, attack, it, it affects their friends. It affects everything. Um, and when you, when someone goes through a public shaming, um, it's almost like a conviction, you know, you, it's, you may be wrongfully convicted, but it's damn near impossible to undo that conviction. So when you have this, your your name is splattered all over the internet as a racist or whatever the case may be, you know, every job you apply for, yeah, it's going to show up. You know, every, anything that if you, if you're single and you're trying to date and you're on a social media platform, that's going to come up. It's always going to forever be attached to you. So I just don't understand why anybody would want to put that type of cruelty on somebody, mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's completely unnecessary and unfair. What do you think are some of the psychological motivation? Now, now I know I, we talked a little bit about ideology can be a motivating factor, and I think it definitely uses this different ideology. Some ideologies use the cancel culture as a tool, but what are the psychological things going on in the people who participate in a mob, in a cancel culture mob? What are some of those things that you've learned? You know, personally, I, I, from what I've seen, I've seen that a lot of this is first and foremost, learned behavior. 
Um, it's this idea that you can hand, you can hide behind a screen name, you can create a fake account, and you can literally just go on a witch hunt with everyone else and publicly attack somebody and never be charged for that crime. It's mm-hmm. easy. It's it's an easy way to be a bully. And I I personally also think that a lot of this, because I said this before about it being a learned behavior, I do think that a lot of people who do participate in the online shaming and uh, public shaming and the online bullying, um, I do believe that that is stemmed from a personal trauma that they have encountered. And they're just afflicting that pain on somebody else just because I just don't see why you would want to perpetrate so much hate, you know, so much anger for what? Just because you want to play sheriff? You know, someone said something you didn't like, you want to play, you want to wear a badge for the day? No, I would also say that maybe it is uh, there's also a dynamic where people who were previously powerless in the days before social media. Right. If you didn't like something that a celebrity said, I mean, what what were you going to be able to do about it? Like nothing. Talk to talk to your friend at the uh, the water cooler. (laughs) But now you can be part of a mob that actually has power. Right. People get fired. People lose jobs. People lose gigs. Oh, my God. Look, I found this old comedy routine that someone did in 1998. I'm going to repost it. And then all, you know, there I'm sure there was a rush. There was a rush of, of, of a sense of uh, power, a sense of righteousness, uh, a sense of belonging. I mean, yeah, it, you it, just it, made me think. Uh, oh, I was just, I was just going to add. I feel like people just you know, when they go down these rabbit holes to try to find the wrong in somebody, it's the satisfaction that like, I gotcha. Like, and they, they feel, they feel empowered by that. It's bizarre. I I think maybe it gives them a temporary feeling of goodness themselves too. It's temporary though, but it's this sort of, I've, I'm pointing to what I view as the wrongness in you, which makes me feel a little bit elevated when I do it, because I'm pointing it, I think I'm pointing down, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit of it too. Uh, Rob, you just made me think of a uh, uh, guilty confession, what you do before social media. I only ever wrote one letter to any celebrity fan club, and it's I was a big fan of New Kids on the Block, but I did not like Jordan. And I wrote him <laughs> a very sincere letter asking him to drop out of the band. <laughs> <laughs> that is. That is- and- it went unanswered. If I had had Twitter, maybe I could have built a coalition yeah, of people. Yeah, you could have mobbed it. <laughs> exactly. I can't believe they didn't take it into careful consideration. <laughs> so, Desma, you've, you've brought up psychology a couple times, and I just want to um, ask you guys, have you read the, I think, it was it Jonathan Haidt that wrote Coddling of the American Mind, Kerry? Yeah. Uh, he co-authored it with uh, I, Greg I, listen, Luciano, I, I actually, yeah, I actually listened to it as a book on tape. I have to admit. I have yeah. not. I okay. have not listened to that or read it. Well, what you're saying, Desma, is making me think of um, one of the points in that book about uh, our culture. We've constructed a culture whereby we uh, teach people to, instead of turning inward to fix the world by fixing themselves first and fixing, like adapting themselves to the world for things that are dissatisfying, um, we've we've created a culture in which we invite people to instead solve everyone else's problems instead of their own. And uh, I think that might be very related to what you're saying here, right? Which which is, this is why it's so satisfying to have a mob 
to be part of a mob to go after someone. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, and, and, I and I don't know how we how how have we gotten to this place? And Desmond, and I ask this on the podcast all the time, where dissent and disagreement is somehow what violence, right? Silence is violence. Words are violence. Everything's violence. How did we get to this point, right? I mean, Desmond and I have worked together now for eight years, but we're also really good friends, and we don't agree on a lot of things. I mean, we agree on we do agree on some things, but we have disagreements. We cheer each other out. It's respectful. I always listen really carefully to what Desma says. I think she's very wise. I sometimes I just don't agree with it, and that's fine. But I mean, but but this idea that somehow if we have a disagreement, there are these lines in the sand that are decided, and if you fall on the wrong side of that, you're out. You're out of uh, you're out of social groups. You're out of uh, you're, you know. You need to be banished. You need to be ostracized. That's something that that book did make me think of too, right? Which is that um, in our education system now, we're not encouraging a healthy exchange of different ideas. Yeah. yeah well, it's really totally. baked, baked into the social justice ideology. It's it's all about controlling discourse in a way. And Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay have a new book out. I haven't read the book yet. We just got it, uh, Cynical Theories. But I know they've talked about this a lot, about how it 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 tells us that there's this power differential between groups, and therefore discourse is impossible with someone who's in a different racial group or sex group than you because you're in a different power level, and the, therefore the discourse won't be fair, and you shouldn't have conversations. They actively will shut down conversations because it's like, I can't go into this conversation with you because I'm more oppressed than you are, and therefore it's going to be imbalanced. And it, and it's a way to avoid discourse itself. It's a very attack on. It makes me think of the um, of the Stalin quote Carter mentioned to me the other day about you know we would not let our enemies have guns. Why would we let them have ideas? It's it's very like if we can mm. control what you're allowed to yeah. say then we control what you're allowed to think because controlling what you say first by making you fearful then controls what you even think, which then we use to control you. It's, it's, it's fascinating, but it, um, I don't know. It's maybe you guys, since you're getting more into some of the social justice cultures uh, stuff or the social justice cancel stuff should, um, talk to James Lindsay. I think you might find it a really interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to ask you, speaking of which, are there any big names who've been canceled who are on your wish list to talk to? Are you guys going to talk to J.K. Rowling? <laughs> we've tried. I think we, we've, we've tried. Been... Yeah, we've actually re- we reached out. Um, and at the time, so maybe maybe I need to do another outreach. But at the time, she couldn't do any type of media just because she was tied up. But yeah, she's definitely one we would like to reach out to. Um, Shane Gillis, um, the comedian, we've we would love to talk to him. Um, I've been work. I've been working on Roseanne for like a year now. At some point, Roseanne. That's mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, I, I'm familiar with how Roseanne was canceled. What about what? What was the deal with Shane Gillis? I don't remember that. Rob, you hit you hit me up about that story. He was the Saturday- yeah yeah so yeah so he had got hired by Saturday Night Live, and then within days of him getting hired. Someone posted things from his podcast where he was making fun of like I- impersonating like Chinese food uh, uh, delivery people using sort of a stereotypical accent. And by like two days later, the offer was rescinded. He was fired. And he tweets. He's like, hey, you guys don't think cancel culture is real. I'm in my parents' basement now. Um, he's basically lost his career. 
So I think yeah. he's trying to rebuild. But, uh, you know, that's to me, I'm really, really fascinated by that intersection of the arts and cancel culture, because, boy, that is that, you know, if there's one place where people should have the freedom to explore different boundaries and to push its comedy. I mean, you just couldn't have George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy today. You know, that that would just Lenny Bruce. That would never fly. And you think about it back in that day progressives were the ones who were the classical liberals and who wanted free speech and wanted to have artists be able to explore and push boundaries, whether it was pornography or, or, you know, jokes and bad taste or making fun of the establishment. And now the tables flip, right? And you have basically the left is trying to sort of police what is in bounds in comedy. And it's not very much. Well, this is precisely why comedy is a target, I think, because it has the value that you said, because it's the one place where you need that more than anything else. I think that's that's why it's probably one of the biggest targets. Um, I And I assume you guys have noticed this also, but it it seems like you can get away with an awful lot of bad behavior if you have the right political beliefs and just apologize. People will kind of you know, they'll threaten to cancel you. You apologize, but you're in their cult. You're, you've, you've, you've got the woke ideology going on. So they kind of let you let you proceed. Um, and the, the person actually isn't a comedian, but a politician that comes to mind most obviously to me is Justin uh, Trudeau, who it's repeatedly caught in these blackface photos that I think <laughs> anyone else would be totally yeah. their careers would be ruined. But the left <laughs> just seems to be like, yeah, it's cool. Uh, and Not just on. that. Yeah. He he also commits the SJW sin of cultural appropriation when he goes to India. Yes. All those photos of him in in traditional dress, they would not be cool with that if it was someone on the right wing. But because it's him, they're like, uh, okay, <laughs> you can do that. That's so weird. But what about the ones that? What about the ones that don't? What about the ones that have the right politics but don't come back? That I'm fascinated in that. Maybe you guys in future interviews can try and figure out where that line is because someone like Justin Trudeau is forgiven of these supposed sins, um, ideological sins, because he's, because he has the right beliefs, the right overall ideology. He's just like, well, I made some mistakes. Right. But someone like Harvey Weinstein, he's not forgiven. And he tried to show in his, I don't know if you remember his apology letter, but he actually, in the apology letter, he's like, I'm real sorry about what I did to women, but you guys, I hate the NRA and I'm going to go after the guns. Like, and then he's like, why is, why is that stuff about the NRA in his letter? It's because he's trying to, I think, trying to say signal, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the right group. Yeah. I'm one of you. Forgive me this sin because I'm in the right group. And they didn't. So what is that well, difference? I, I think that yeah, they, I that I, I, well, I have a theory on this. I think that the first tier will be protected, right? So look at comedians. You have Howard Stern, who's got just this history, right? Right. I mean, I think a couple months ago, an old video surfaced from a pay-per-view special he did. By the way, I'm a longtime Howard Stern fan, but I'd never seen this before, and it was kind of shocking. He's in blackface, and he's calling his uh, sidekick the N-word, and he survives it because he has been, he's he's at the front lines, and he has been fighting the SJW battles in his own way for the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and he has a long history of that. And then Jimmy Kimmel with the blackface and oh, what Joy yeah. Behar, yep. Joy Behar recently, right? I think it's the second tier, right? So if you are, I think it was the editor of Bon Appetit and 
basically some of his employees said that he wasn't doing as good a job of inclusion, but the, the, the chargers were very vague. And he said, I'm going to take some time to contemplate my privilege. He's gone. He's never coming back. Right. Once you say that, that's like, you might as well just pen your farewell to society. So I think that the second tier, the third tier of people, even if you have the right set of beliefs, you're disposable and they can get to you. Um, I think that so far they can't get to people on the other side, right? So if you just don't buy into the ideology, and I'll give you a great example, Ricky Gervais, who says, I'm a progressive, but I think these people are a bunch of a-holes and I'm not playing this game. And every single time that they come after him, he comes back at them hard on Twitter and tells them to F off and they can't touch him. He's impenetrable because he doesn't. So the, uh, to me, I think that the only way you win this game is by not playing it. The second you play, you're a target. I think you're right. Because yeah. if you're right about the ones that get caught in some type of transgression but aren't affected, if you're right that it's like a first tier thing, you're you could always become second tier and then you're not protected anymore. You never know at what point, like Sarah Silverman, they've come for her a few times, but they haven't taken her down. But, you know, at some point, Sarah Silverman could be less influential and then it's bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Right. That's How much of this do you think is, I mean, I like to attribute a lot of this to ideology uh, and psychology um, and, you know, w- watching the the change in culture over the past several decades and and that kind of stuff. But, you know, devil's advocate, you could just argue all of this psychology, human psychology hasn't really changed. Our ideologies haven't really changed all that much. This is just what happens with social media. This is just, this is tech and it's here to stay as long as we have tech. How much do you think there's truth in that side of it? Yeah, I think there's, there's some truth. I mean, tech definitely makes it easier um, just because you you can just reach so many people can reach one individual at at one time. Um, I think if you remove the tech, it would make it a little bit harder. But at the end of the day, I really do think that this is an embedded behavior in people and they would find a way if it wasn't tech, it would be something else. Um, you know, and, and to go back to some of the examples of cancel culture, you know, it's we've interviews that we've done. It's not always just, on social media. I mean, people track down people's home addresses, send packages, you know, they've sent hate mail. Um, they get a hold of financial information, like all of this stuff, kids' school addresses, all of this. And they will always find a way. Um, I think it's just, it's a mean spirited uh, behavior that people just have. And it could be a trend. I don't know if it's going to turn around, but I, I just, I just think that tech has lo- very little to do with it. And Desma, think about um, one of the interviews that we did. Um, This guy had three kids. And the way that they went after him is they took those pictures of those kids and him interacting with his children and said, Mm -hmm. this is a known pedophile. Watch out for him. And they put it all over the internet. So I mean, it's with Mm -hmm. the pictures of the children. So there's no limits, right? The cruelty and the, the savagery of the attacks. Um, You know, we have talked to so many people who told us that they really thought about committing suicide, that they were really left. I mean, just imagine for a second, and this is just hard for me to imagine, and I've been in broadcasting, you know, my whole adult life, but imagine for a second that 
maybe you even made a mistake. Let's say you tweeted a, a joke that was ill-conceived and you realized, oh my God, that was, that was probably a dumb idea. And the next thing you know, you're trending on Twitter. And the next thing you know, you're starting to get death threats. And then you open up your credit card and it's frozen because uh, it's been hacked and your bank account's been emptied. And now you're getting your cell phones ringing and people are threatening you. And then maybe you hear from your employer and your job's gone. And then maybe you're trying to call some friends and they're scared to talk to you. I mean, imagine that feeling of like helplessness and isolation. And there's no room and no time where the people who are doing the canceling sit there and think, I'm destroying a life. Maybe what I should be doing is having a dialogue, trying to figure out what happened, try to move forward, try to have some understanding, maybe some forgiveness. But that's that's not in the vocabulary, or as one of our guests said, the vocabulary of of the people who are doing this. And I and I just want to add to to what Rob was saying. Um, I think a big thing that a lot of people don't realize is that we've all made mistakes, all of us. Um, the people who go digging through that uh, social media for that really bad, vulgar tweet that they put out eight years ago, I'm pretty sure each, every one of us, all, all four of us on this, on this interview right now have done or said something that could get us canceled. So I think that if one by one, each pe if the attacks came by um, an individual, and it just literally was, okay, I'm taking out Carter. I am taking out Carrie. I'm taking out Rob. And then the next thing you know, someone takes me out. Until we're all eliminated, it's still fair playing game. And that's damn near impossible. So I think people don't realize that they're wasting a lot of time because you can't take out everybody. You just can't. Yeah. yeah. And, and think about 2020. It's been... Oh, yeah. True. Oh, yeah. You yeah. can definitely intimidate people, but... I just I don't understand how far people are going to go. You know, like we all can't be put out of a job. We all can't be listed as pedophiles. We all can't have our uh, financial information posted, our home addresses posted. Like literally like we're it's like the young eating the young. You know, like this is just like it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. It's and, like laws. It's like a survivor. There's going to be <laughs> right. one person standing at the end of this game. I don't know what they win, but uh, they'll be the last survivor. But I yeah. mean. Anybody watching this, think about the, this has been a tough year, right? And, and a, a lot of people have got, been under a lot of stress. Think about you, the worst 15 seconds of the year for you, when you were really frustrated and you said or did or yelled or just really kind of lost your cool. And now just mm -hmm. for a second, imagine that that was videotaped and broadcast around the world. Would you be canceled? I bet uh, all of us would be. Yeah, If absolutely. we're honest with ourselves. That's one of the... That's a great example of uh, what you're talking about, Desma, with some people who you don't like what they did or su or support what they did or agree with them, and you do think they made a mistake, but you, but you said you don't think this should happen to anyone. And it made me start thinking about, do, are there any examples like that I can think of? And you know that woman, Amy Cooper, who reacted to the black guy, the bird watcher, She's a white woman. She had a dog on a leash and she just in the video that we saw was on her worst behavior, as you're saying, on her worst behavior, caught in her worst moment and maybe has a lot of issues because I saw some stuff people dug up about her dog having lots of accidents. You know, maybe who knows, has all these issues and is being the worst version of herself on camera. 
But then I watched what happened and people went after her and they found, you know, she got, I think she got fired, all the Mm -hmm. same stuff that we see that goes on. And that one is one that made me stop and think, I'm like, does Mm -hmm. she deserve this? Because that, you know, with someone like Maria Tuscan, who you interviewed or Sockmetician, I can look at those stories and say, I'm against the mob behavior and they don't deserve, they don't deserve this. It was, they're innocent. They didn't do anything that is deserving of being canceled. But then I look at someone like Amy Cooper and I have to confront that, that feeling in myself of, of wanting to feel like, uh, you know, just, just desserts, right? This Mm -hmm. was, this was, this was, um, something you deserve. And, uh, and at the time I did confront that and I realized, yeah, I don't think, I don't think what the mob is doing is any better than what she did. They're being right. the worst version of themselves too. Cause they're all like, it's like bloodthirst. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Go find out everything you can on this person. I don't know. Yeah, it definitely is a bloodthirst. And I think when we see these stories where race plays a role mm-hmm. in the cancellation, um, those are the ones we really need to, as, as individuals, we need to take a step back and look at the whole picture. Um, because what was it? A 30 second clip of her, you know, irate, uh, but she's deemed as a racist. We don't know anything about this woman before, you know, um, we know that she's underground and basically MIA because her life was threatened, but we do not know anything about her. Did she show any behavior prior to that incident that she was racist, but she's now forever labeled as a racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even the bird watcher seemed a little bit taken aback by what happened and, mm-hmm. and had, and was quoted afterwards as saying like, okay, I, I, I think that's enough. I think she got the message. Yeah. It's a little I mean, extreme. I, I, I'm, I'm someone who generally supports the idea of in a, in a broad sense. And so maybe I'll have to clarify, but of, of ostracism over, uh, legal action, right? I think society's better if we can kind of nudge people in the right direction rather than throwing them in jail uh, or that kind of thing. Um, but I think one thing that I see, you know, the idea of ostracism presupposes that people can change and that there's some incentive for them to behave better. So there's a difference between pulling someone aside and saying, hey, that behavior is really unacceptable. You, you know, we're really not going to continue to tolerate that around. This is, these are some ways that you need to change or we're not, you know, there's, there's kind of a gradual proportional response. Whereas what you see from the mob is zero to 60 right away. It's like, it's the equivalent of the death penalty immediately for a minor infraction. Absolutely. Social, yeah, I think that's exactly social right. death penalty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you got, is I, there you in your book? I think... Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to say the the one thing that I think uh, Desmond and I have talked about, you know, when we do television shows and we want someone to appear on our show, we have to get them to sign a release. Even when we do the podcast, we have people do a verbal release for us. I think that down the line, there's going to have to be some sort of a law where you can't just videotape some random person on the street and put it out there without getting their consent, because too many lives are being destroyed by people having an interaction uh, recorded uh, without their knowledge or consent and then having it broadcast throughout the world out of context. And a lot of times with these cases, when you start to find out more about what happened in the story, it's not so clear cut that it was what we thought it was in that 10 second snippet, but it's too late. The mob's moved on to their next victim and the lives destroyed. So I think, 
Yeah. So I do mm-hmm. think that at some point there's going to be liability and maybe it'll dampen it a little bit where the original poster who posts something uh, without the consent of the subject is going to be liable for damages. And I think that'll put a good halt to it. Totally agree on that. Um, you know, because now you have people walking around terrified that someone's going to videotape them. I mean, there was a really great example. I forgot which state it was in where it was a woman being recorded by a African-American male. And she like lost, she literally lost it because, and she's, and the video is out there. Anyone can and see it, but she's literally crying, like total meltdown um, because she, and she's saying, I'm going to be labeled as a Karen. I'm not a Karen. Like I'm not racist. And I'm like, this is insane. You know, this is supposed to be, you know, a typical Wednesday afternoon. She's running errands and all because she cut off someone in traffic. Um, uh, I think I saw that when he followed her home and was getting her license yeah. plate and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason why someone and that's the example of the public shaming. You know, like this is a yeah. woman who, you know, she's literally that her meltdown of being labeled as a Karen is the worst 30 seconds, maybe a minute of that video. And now you have local, you know, residents coming out and they're just like, what's, what's going on? And so, you know, she's there and she's just begging, like she's begging for her life. That's completely unfair. And yeah. it's not right. Um, and I just don't know how, how do we get past that? You know, unless we identify and, and, you know, Rob brought it up that we get to the point where you actually have to get consent. Um, Cause I think that would automatically stop a lot yeah. of this and, and get rid of the fear that I'm going to be framed or I'm going to be portrayed as a Karen or whoever um, based on something that's possibly out of context. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's even possible though in in the age of an internet where I could make a, I could easily make a, an anonymous account and post through tour a video of that woman and you can't prove who it was that took the video or who posted it or whatever. Um, it's, it would tamp it, it would tamp it down. I mean, yeah. look at the Amy Cooper situation that you mentioned. It was the Birdwatcher's sister who ended up posting that, I think, on Facebook. And then it just got uh, reposted and reposted and went global. Um, I don't know that in that particular incident, uh, there would have been a desire to sort of go underground. Fair. And, you know, most people don't have the knowledge or mm-hmm. the ability to try to do that. So, yes. look, no, no system's perfect, but I think that at least that would tamp down this desire, this gotcha game where busybodies, to use that word again, go around looking for people to take out. You know, we're all equipped with these video cameras now in our pocket and we can broadcast to the world. I mean, it's amazing technology, but it's, it it is being misused in some cases. Yeah. And humans aren't, aren't, we're not, we haven't evolved to act like we're under constant surveillance by the entire world at any moment, which is basically what's true. As long as you're out of your house, and maybe sometimes even if you're in your house, you're potentially under surveillance and the entire world can see what you're doing um, because of the prevalence of cell phone cameras and stuff. So yeah, I I can see that being being an issue. Is there any... So go ahead, Carrie. I was going to say, what would you guys say what would you guys say to someone like uh, AOC and people who allege that there is no such thing as cancel culture? What would your response be to that claim? 
<laughs> laughing's good. <laughs> I I just want to know. I, I, first of all, I want to know why they think that there is no cancel culture. It's it is literally in the news every single day, in some shape, form, or fashion. It's trending. It, it's it's out there. People are fully aware of it. Um, to to kind of basic to basically denounce and say that it doesn't exist. Um, I feel that personally, I think it's um, being dishonest with yourself and realizing that this is actually a problem. I don't think she doesn't believe I it also, exists I, anyway. I think she just says it because she thinks that cancel culture can be something she can benefit from. Right? I don't. She doesn't exactly, that and that's. And Carter, that's actually what I was going to say. She's the leader, you know, she's one of the key leaders of the SJW movement. And so right now she wields the power. I guess all I would say to her is people fickle are fickle. People change uh, political ideas and movements come and go. And there's going to come a time when she's not so popular and her ideas are not so popular. And she's not going to be such a big fan of cancel culture when she's the target. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Because that day will come. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a problem. It 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 doesn't exist. It doesn't exist if it's not a if they don't come after you personally. The minute they come after you, oh my God, this is a problem. We must do something. Let's get <laughs> let's get the legislation together. You know, like you know, we need support. But now it's kind of like meh. You know, it's kind of like poverty. You know, it's kind of like hunger. It doesn't affect me personally. Mm-hmm. So why do I need to worry about it? But I, I guarantee you, if your financial information hit online and pictures of you and your kids were posted all over social media and someone deemed you as a pedophile, you will definitely have a different of opinion about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How has this show, how has been, how has doing the canceled podcast changed you personally, each one of you and, and how you approach the world? It's actually a really good question. Um you know, one thing that seems to be, and it's, it, it's, uh, it's a topic of discussion. It's always been a topic of discussion, but more than ever now is um, racism. And I, I personally, you know, look at these, I look at racism a little bit different now. Um, you know, with Black Lives Matter, the organization, and people, you know, throwing around the term Black Lives Matter. Um, some of the the um, acts that have been happening in the news, you know, with the protests and all this, I'm a little bit more open-minded than I've ever been. Um, you know, I'm I will take the time and look at the full picture altogether, all sides, um, even if it is something that involves law enforcement. I'm not I'm not quick to have a reactive judgment on it. Um, I want to see the full picture and make a decision for myself rather than jumping on the bandwagon of what my peers or anyone else agrees or whatever they're posting on social media as well. Um, I, I'm truly just able to just analyze, analyze things and make a determination and a decision that's best for me. You may not agree with it, but it's best for me. Right. It makes me think of that. I forget the verse, but Desmond, you're making me think of the Bible verse about being slow to anger Mm. and being slow, like taking your time to figure out what you think about something. 
and slow to speak, slow to anger. And I think we could all benefit from that. I used to be very quick to have an opinion. We live in a world where I think you're encouraged to have an opinion on everything immediately. And the easiest way and fastest way to do that is to figure out where your tribe stands and then say it, Mm -hmm. you know, but um, gosh, if we all took time every time to, to really figure out what we think about something, I love your answer. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, and Rob, the, I didn't mean to cut. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Gonna, and I was just going to say the other thing too that, you know, going through this uh, journey with Robin talking to our guests, it's really opened up my mind to the fact that none of us are perfect. None of us. We like to walk around and think we are, and that we have no mistakes. You know, like there are times where I get so cocky, especially in the work I'm doing, and I'm like, yeah, like I did this, and I'm like, wait a minute. I'm not that great. There is, someone, <laughs> there is someone else out there that can do the same exact damn thing. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm not that special. But somehow we've gotten to this place where, you know, Carrie, you have done a lot of wrong things and I'm going to look down on you and you're not on my level. And that we're, we're healthy with being we're, we're at a place where that's actually a healthy way of approaching people. So when we talk to our guests and seeing that the stuff that they have done, the behavior that they've demonstrated, I'm a little bit more open minded into knowing that there maybe just maybe, you know, they they didn't really mean what they did, you know, rather than just holding on to the fact that right in the mafia, that's you, you own that yeah. behavior right. it's a little bit. It's a little bit different. Yeah. Well, just to just answer your question, I'm not going to be able to top Desma's answer, but um, I think that I think that I always have been a a pretty free speech absolutist. But now I really realize through doing these conversations, one, how critical it is to have a healthy society where people can debate and celebrate differences and celebrate differences of opinions as opposed to seeing it as some sort of an attack. And two, I think I realize now just how much of an assault there are, there is in a concerted fashion on free speech, on dialogue. And this probably sounds high-minded for Desma and I doing a podcast um, on the side like this while we do these shows, but I feel like any little thing that I can add to try to remind people of the value of a free exchange of ideas and of respecting different people from different walks of life and different points of view, you know, if we can just do a little bit to help with that, it's worth it to me because I feel like right now it does frighten me sometimes when I hear people who call themselves progressive saying the most regressive things about about speech and violence and dialogue and differences it's yeah. it's you know it's it is it does scare me and I, I i i have to like just take a deep breath and remind myself that this will pass i really do believe that i don't know how but i really do believe that even the people saying it and carrie you're you're so interesting because you were one of these people once mm-hmm. I feel like even the people saying it on some deep level, when they say these things out loud, have to know it just doesn't quite sound right. Yes. I think there's probably mm-hmm. a little bit in the pit of their stomach, there's something off. Even if they don't consciously examine it and look at it, they, I, a lot of my feelings of uneasiness that I used to have, 
I couldn't have identified where they came from. But I think it was because I wasn't living authentically. I, w- I wasn't living, my beliefs did not make intellectual, they weren't intellectually consistent and I had not examined them. And so when you're living in a place of, you don't own your opinions and beliefs thoroughly. And so you naturally are going to feel a little less confident when you express yourself. Plus you're in a belief system that has programmed you to put everything you say through a sensor to make sure you don't accidentally misspeak and get canceled. (laughs) So everything you say is like, really, Oh, what am I typing? You know, but don't say the wrong thing. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of the people who speak these things are fundamentally dis, dis, content in a way and maybe don't even realize where that uneasiness in themselves comes from. But that's just based on what I was like. I don't know. Um, can we, I, sorry, yeah. can I just, I want to tap your, your yeah, brains you for a minute on, on how you get news. Um, because Desma, you just said oh, something. Yeah. You said something about, uh, Oh, when I look at something now, I step back and I analyze it, particularly with black lives matter. Um, and protests and stuff, and I analyze it. And someone threw a question out to me the other day, and I realized that my answer was disappointingly complicated. I, I criticized her because she, she said something, and I said, well, you're just getting all your news from NPR. And she said, well, where do you get your news? And I realized that my answer was this complex mix of like, well, I have to go to these leftist things and these things on the right, and I have to do this, and then I have to go find sources. And I realized, oh, wait, I spend all my day trying to figure out what the truth is. I don't have a succinct answer for like, if you have a real job, where do you just go get news? <laughs> like, how do you do this? It's not, it's, it's not easy. Um, you know, I, I'm not one to just read CNN and be like, that, that's the source. Um, I do, I do really spend time researching these things, especially if it's a, if it's a news article where it's trending, where it is something about racism or if it's, uh, you know, something involving law enforcement, I'll review everything. Every And I'm not looking at personal blogs. I don't give a damn about blogs. I want actual sources. Um, and so I will actually stay silent on the subject matter until I've gathered enough information where I feel I'm, one, educated to talk about it, and two, have a full understanding of what really happened. A lot of times when people... Um, you know, want to give their point of view on something that's trending in the news, they haven't done any research. You know, they're just going on going by what showed up on their uh, Facebook feed. Yep. I think you have to also go back to source materials. I I started in journalism and then um, made the move into uh, working on one hour series. But um, I had worked at CBS when I was in my 20s. And I think you have to go back to source material. For example, let's just go back to COVID, right? I, I, you know, you, you, if you watch uh, or CNN or you go on CNN.com, it's just a daily, you know, this is the plague. And if you just go to the CDC's website or you go to the World Health Organization's website and look at the breakdowns and look at the numbers yourself, you really get a very, very different feeling. You know, for example, the World Health Organization last week said 10% of the world has gotten COVID at this point, has been exposed to it. That's 780 million people. Uh, We have 7.8 billion people in the world and 1 million have died, which is 1 million too many. But it's still one out of 780 now seems Mm -hmm. to be the mortality rate, which is very different from what we had been told. And so 
I think that the key is source material. You know, I, the Mount Rushmore speech that Donald Trump gave, I'm making no comment about Donald Trump as a person or a candidate or a president, but what he said in that speech, if you go back and watch it, and then you look at the coverage where it was gaslighting, it was just two different events. And so I think that a lot of people are really getting entrenched in positions because they don't have the time or inclination to go to the actual source. And that's where the media is really letting us down because um, it's so much, it's really advocacy more than bias these days. And yeah. even, you know, mm-hmm. even if you go, this is, so I also, I love the source material answer, um, which is how a historian does things as well. You always look for your original sources. I've noticed, and I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but maybe you have, all of the mainstream media outlets make it actually most of them make it very difficult to actually find the source material. So if you go read an article on CNN and they'll say, uh, the president said blah, 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 and there's a link and you'll think, oh, you're going to link me to the transcript or to a video of him saying, nope, it's another article where they're explaining what he said. They never, they very rarely give you access to the source material. Finding the source material is depressingly yes. difficult yeah. given the fact that we we should have the entire world's information at our fingertips but getting that source material, it seems like there's a lot of roadblocks they've been putting up to make sure we can't find the actual source material for anything. It's like when they accidentally tell you what they're doing, like Chris Cuomo saying, it's illegal for you guys to read the WikiLeaks emails, but we, the media, can read them and tell you what they say. It's different for us. Like, first, that's not true. And secondly, you spoke out loud what you do, <laughs> which is right. tell us what to believe. Well, um, try to look up try to look up the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, you guys know about that. I, I, I don't. I hope I, I hope I didn't mangle this, but there was a a Harvard doctor and an Oxford doctor and thirty six other doctors who basically have looked at everything. This was like last week, and they came out. I, I hope I'm not mangling this, and I think it was referred to as the Great Barrington Declaration. And they said, "Look, these lockdowns are just not even close to worth the cost. We think we oh, need to reopen." Yeah. We need to reopen societies and protect the basically what David Katz from Yale was saying from the beginning. We need to reopen societies in the Western world and just try to protect the the vulnerable. Now, if yeah. you go and Google it, you can find everything but the source material. You can find all the media spin on it and why this was just a reckless thing to do from these esteemed doctors. But it's very difficult to actually get the declaration itself. And so, you know, again, that's the problem. So unless people are trained as journalists or historians or they really are motivated and have the inclination, most people are just going to read that New York Times headline, which is, oh, these are, you know, a bunch of uh, kooky doctors who are going against um, going against the grain here. And most people dismiss it. Yeah. Do you think it's gotten worse, the media? Like, like I remember... I remember you mentioned earlier, Rob, in the discussion, what it was like during the buildup to the Iraq war and how anybody who was speaking against it, if we had had social media back then, may have been canceled. And I was watching, I was really plugged into the news then because I hated W. I I was looking at all these different sources, every source I could find. I, you know, I was examining things and I was like, this is BS, the yellow cake uranium stuff is BS. We're going to war based on a lie and people are just beating this drum. The media is complicit in selling us this lie, the media and the CIA. And then something happened to me during the Obama years. I was like, oh, somebody I like's in charge. I just quit paying attention to everything. Like, oh, the guy I like is driving the car. 
And I think during those years, I also became, I had forgotten about the media and how they lied to me about the Iraq war. I'd, I just kind of, I fell back in step with CNN and places like that. And so now it's hard for me to judge when I look at the media now and I'm, I'm looking at the amount of gaslighting they're doing. And I feel propaganda influenced by the FBI and the CIA. Has it always been this bad? Here's my question. It's hard for me to judge. Has it always been this bad? Are things worse now? Are we living in especially weird, interesting times now? Or I, I, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Rob. I, I, I know. I'm sorry. I was just going to say because I spent so many years defending the media because I started in news and I worked at uh, CBS in Los Angeles for five or six years and. Um, People would have this discussion with me in the early 2000s, is there a liberal bias? And I really would just like argue pretty vociferously against it. And, you know, looking back, there was a tinge of a bias, but there was always the expectation that um, you were trying to be balanced. There was a the old timers when I started would always say news people should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I think that we've gotten so far. I say we I'm not part of it anymore. But the media has gotten so far from that where basically there's an expectation from the audience for the kind of confirmation bias they're going to get. And the major newspapers, the major networks do not want to challenge their audience with hard truths. So I think you had a case like a year ago where the New York Times actually changed the headline from a, uh, a speech that they were covering that Trump gave because it wasn't um, sufficiently uh, negative about mm-hmm. and, and, and the and the readers complained and they actually changed it. And then the second factor is, I think you have that SJW movement that's happening in these newsrooms. You saw it with the Tom Cotton op-ed and you've got now um, a war between sort of old school liberals who are a little bit older in the newsroom and these young just out of college, we're going to change the world SJWs who see news as a vehicle for an outcome as opposed for Mm -hmm. a vehicle for truth. And that's, that's just a core difference. So I think, yes, I think it's gotten worse. I think we've gotten from bias to activism. It's a Mm -hmm. big difference. I totally agree. I think, um, I do agree that the, the news has definitely made this much worse, much worse, much worse. Um, because think about it, like when news breaks, um, generally it's something that let's go back, stay on the topic of cancel culture. It's something that is broke on social media and that is fueled to the news outlets. And they're the ones who are running it in its cycle. And so now people who may not be on social media, they're now seeing it on their television. And now it's the topic of discussion in the office or with your friends or with your family or whoever. So now you're going back to the source where it came from, which is social media to go and find who did this, why they did it. And then that's where the mob mentality comes from. So it's, uh, I think, I think if one thing that has been lost for a while now is true. And Rob and I talk about this a lot, especially with, the show Reasonable Doubt is the true art of journalism. Mm-hmm. Go Absolutely. and find, go find your source, report the facts, not an idea, not an opinion or, you know, write how you feel, find the facts and report that. But oddly enough, they talk about the facts a lot more now than they used to. They, they use the word facts 
a lot more now than I remember. They talk about we have the facts a lot more. I, I don't remember that dis- that that language being used. It almost seems like a misdirection, right? They they they're well, very much you about. Have to a- if you have to advertise it, how true is it? I saw an ad for the New York Times during, uh, oh gosh, this guy I used to date really liked award shows. And he took me to this live screening of the award shows in te- here in Texas where they, I don't know if it was the, I don't even remember. I think it was the Academy Awards, but they, you go to a theater and pay to sit like you're at the, and you watch it. And they ran an ad in the middle for the New York Times. And it basically was like, New York Times, we're bringing you the facts in a time of fiction. And it just was such a weird, I burst out laughing. Like you're having to sell me on your trustworthiness in your advertisement. That's just, I don't know. It just, it's, it, yeah. you shouldn't have to do that. Your work should speak for itself. You shouldn't have oh. to assure me. Well, it's like politicians who say we're just following the science. We've yes. heard that a lot. <laughs> right. Oh gosh. We've heard that a lot. I, um, something you were going to say, something you said the other day, I meant, Oh yeah. About Twitter. I, I saw someone mention this recently and it stuck with me about how Twitter is sort of leading what's happening in the newsrooms now. Twitter's cool. creating the stories in some ways. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. If you look at all the journalists, they have Twitter accounts, you know, and they have followers. And when that news breaks of whatever it may be, they get it first and then they're running with the story. So the reality of it is, is that you don't have journalists out there boots to the ground like they did in the old days finding this story. They're waiting for it to pop up in their social media feed. Yeah. yeah. I feel like if we're going to talk about news, though, in Twitter, we have to mention what happened yesterday because I think it's one of the most outrageous uh, Mm -hmm. examples of, I don't know if I would call it cancel culture, but definitely big tech involvement in what what constitutes news, right? You saw the New York Post publish files from Hunter Biden's hard drive that agree or not with Joe Biden's politics or Trump's politics are relevant to the conversation uh, around uh, Joe Biden's relationship with the Ukraine and his relationship with his son. Uh, These documents haven't been questioned in terms of their authenticity. And yet you had Facebook uh, push, push that out so that it wasn't getting shared. When the New York Post wrote, wrote an article about it, you had Twitter uh, basically ban retweeting of it. You had Twitter suspend the New York Post's account and the White House press secretary's account. I sometimes wonder what alternate universe am I living in in which regular people don't see what's going on right in front of us? <laughs> that's well, not a real question. I have no <laughs> idea what my question is. <laughs> no, but it's, 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 but that's stop looking though. That's an example of bias versus activism, right? So I think that in the old days, however you want to think of it, new media, old media, um, that story might have been spun with a lot of skepticism about the authenticity or relevance of these documents, but at least it would have been there. Now you just have gaslighting, right? We've just gotten to a whole new level. Um, I mean, it's just sort of like the subjectivity of how certain allegations of, um, you know, and this is a sensitive topic, but, you know, look at Brett Kavanaugh's hearings and how those allegations were treated versus Tara Reid and Joe Biden. Yeah. Now, does anybody seriously believe that one's more credible than the other? Does anyone seriously believe that politics and ideology didn't play a role in how these were covered? I mean, it just seems pretty blatantly obvious. Yeah. 
So I think Carter's question is, which level of George Orwell are we living in? <laughs> yeah, no. What universe? <laughs> I want you to name the universe that we're in right now, because it's not yeah. mine. <laughs> I don't recognize it. I mean, I've said it this whole, this whole year seems so surreal to me that I... It's really the first time in my life it feels like very disorienting. I like I don't recognize the country. I don't recognize the the way people think, the 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 cruelty, the anger. It's it's just a, it 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 doesn't feel like home right now. That's interesting because I've been thinking the same thing and I I part of it I think is because I'm just now starting to come to grips with how much I believe we are all being manipulated by our own intelligence agencies and media. But on the other hand, I also think a lot of it has to do with the mask wearing that we talked about earlier. I think it helps us to do what happen, well, what we see happen online with, with mobs and cancel culture. It, it's, a, it's a way of depersonalizing one another in real life, dehumanizing one another. I think, I think it psychologically helps us to do that. You're wearing something that's covering your face. There's a shield literally between you and this other person and your interactions. And I think it's just a little push maybe to be a little bit worse version of ourself in interaction. So I'm really interested in what it's doing to us that way. But um, I'm sorry, we, I, we devolved from an interview into a conversation. No, I, I was going <laughs> to say maybe it's time. Those are the best kinds of conversations. Okay. <laughs> maybe it's time to prognosticate. Can you guys, uh, I, I, either Desma or Rob, how will this end? Will it end? Cancel culture? <laughs> yeah, I I think that it would have to take for someone with enough power to be personally affected by cancel culture um, to have some influence that some regulations need to be put in place, um, either it be, you know, within social media or technology or uh, cell phones, whatever, just every angle that uh, that is every 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 tool that is used to fire the fuel cancel culture, I think that needs to be regulated. Um, or we will all just be taken out one by one and then it wouldn't even matter. And then, um, you know, the, our human ecosystem will just populate again. Yeah. We're going to have to make this a daily podcast, Asma, if, uh, if we keep up with all this. But <laughs> I, I think I think it ends when we decide it ends. Um, right now, people are scared to talk. Right now, corporations at the whiff of a scandal. I mean, we had a guy who worked for San Diego Gas and Electric who mm. was a Mexican-American man who was cracking his knuckles. Some guy takes a picture of him, posts it on the internet, and SDG&E fires him because they thought it looked like the OK symbol from an alt-right guy. And he's like... I'm a Mexican American. Like, I, I don't think they would have even let me in. And the company just had no backbone. They didn't back their employee from what was a patently absurd claim. So yes, at some point we have to decide that we don't want to live this way anymore, but that's also going to involve corporations, which have been so risk averse and so scared and just dropping people left and right. So it's just empowering the mob because yeah. they know that the people they go after you after are going to get destroyed. And it's very rare that an employer will stand by someone and say, you know what, we're going to do a real investigation here. No, a guy who's cracking his knuckles on the way home, a, a, uh, a blue collar employee, we're not going to dump this guy just to avoid a little bit of bad press. We're sorry. Yeah. Um, Grow a backbone. It's going to take, take some courage, a little bit of a backbone. Where are the adults in the room? Come on. Like, 
Stand up. I hear what you're saying, Rob. That's what I want to see. I want to see people standing up, get some adults in these positions who, I don't know, stand for something, have a little bit of strength. Well, the good thing is the more people that stand up, the easier it is for others to stand up. And you are starting to see some people push back on this, even internally at their companies. And it is, you know, it is becoming, I think, more uh, in the awareness of the public a little bit more. So maybe we just need to hit an inflection point where there's enough people that are saying, no, I'm not going to be a party to this, that more and more people are then willing to stand up and say, yeah, me neither. Uh, but it's hard to be one of the first few. I think, because you, cause you yeah. may lose your job. Yeah. Well, I think to get to that point, you know, where people actually start standing up for what's right, we as individuals need to start thinking for ourselves. And until that happens, we'll never be able to get to that next level of where you actually have people standing up one by one and 10 by 10 um, to the point where you have enough that it will actually make an impact. We still... People are still too afraid to have their own idea and express that idea because of cancel culture or just being afraid that someone is going to be upset with them because they didn't agree with them. You know, so yeah, I think that's first and foremost. We just need to get back to the practice of knowing who we are as individuals. It's so yeah. ironic, right, because the, the, the promise of social media was about self-expression. Right. It was about this is a way for you to be your own individual and express yourself and and find a community of, of like minded people and be able to kind of be yourself online. And it was supposed to be a very empowering tool. But what I'm hearing you say, which I think is correct, is that <laughs> actually the opposite has happened. Well, the Internet was supposed to give us uh, the world's knowledge at our fingertips, and it, it doesn't seem to have made us that much. Oh, smarter, yeah, so. we have true. some misinformation at our fingertips, at least. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So. Yeah. Well, I wanted to thank you guys so much for coming on. Thank you for thank being here. Thank you for patient. having us. And something you said earlier. Yeah, thank you. Something you said earlier about how you said, I don't want to get too high-minded about what Desmond and I are doing on the side. And, but you are right. It's not too high-minded. I think, I think the fact that the two of you are doing this show on the side shows that it's very meaningful, that there's like purpose there. This is something you do outside of work because you're interested in it and you're pursuing something and pursuing knowledge of, like you said, just an interest in what happens to people after cancel culture. So anybody who hasn't checked out cancel the podcast should go and check it out. If um, people who watch our show, you're already familiar with my story. So um, my, I have an episode on there, but there's, you, you may also be familiar with Maria Tuscan, who we've interviewed before, uh, Sockmetician. But what are some of the ones that people in our audience may not be familiar with? Like, could you each tell us one of your favorites that you think people should listen to? I'm going to go with Natasha Tynes. Uh, Natasha Tynes is a Jordanian American woman who admittedly made a mistake. She was on the Washington, D.C. train. And she saw a woman who was eating uh, against company policy. She worked, you know, she worked for the for the train station and she was eating on the train. So she took a picture of her and posted it. And she was so disarming with us. She said I was being a Karen. Now, this woman happened to be a black woman and it became an issue of race. And it was a very, very interesting discussion because she said, I'm new to your country. I don't even really understand the dynamics. I'm from Jordan. I'm, I mean, I'm not a white woman. But it was portrayed as if it was a racial thing. She was an author. She lost her book deal. Uh, she had threats. I think that's a really interesting discussion and, and gives people, I think, 
an idea of how context can be missing in these kinds of uh, cancelings. Cool. What was your what favorite? About you, Desma? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, I think the... You know, one, I know Rob just talked about uh, the Natasha Tynes, which touches on race. I think one that's really good that is a nice balance, because we actually had two, two different perspectives of is Professors Under Fire. Um, really, really got into the discussion of, you know, free speech um, and how it plays a role in your profession. Um, you know, we talk heavily about the idea that, you know, we, well, we talk heavily about is there a time and a place for everything? And we get into that discussion quite a bit, you know, with professors and universities and whatnot. So I think that one is one where you see two sides and you can actually, uh, hopefully, uh, form your own opinion on the subject matter. Hopefully. Cool. Great. Well, thank you guys. Well, thank you guys I, yeah. again. Thank you guys really so much. It. We really enjoyed the discussion. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please keep socially distant from these individuals. I have calculated a 97.8% chance that they are spies for Oceania. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. This revolution is brought to you by our sponsors, including Comcast, Amazon, Procter & Gamble, the member banks of the Federal Reserve, and all of Silicon Valley. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.